Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Developed in the 1990s, neonicotinoids, or neonics, are the most widely used pesticides used in agriculture around the world today. Thought to be a safer pesticide, we now know they contribute to the bee colony collapse, have decimated fish farms, contaminated water, and are a known neurotoxin to humans. In fact, one small seed treated with this pesticide will kill a small bird. Today, I am speaking with the acting director of NRDC's Pollinator Initiative, Dan Rochelle, and Dr. Kathleen Nolan, pediatrician and co-founder and director of Concerned Health Professionals of New York. We will discuss why it is crucial to our health and future generations that we ban neonics once and for all. Welcome, Kathleen and Dan, and thank you for joining me today. Very happy to be here. First off, give us a background. Like, there are so many pesticides now, it is hard to keep up. What are neonics and how are they different than, say, glyphosate or Roundup that we know about? Yeah, so neonics are neurotoxic insecticides, which means they're designed to kill insects by attacking their nerves. So to separate that from something like glyphosate, glyphosate is nervicide. It's designed to kill weed plants. Neonics are, are specifically honing in on nerve cells and, and designed to kill insects. And the way they do that is they sort of bind to the insect nerve cells and they don't let go and they overstimulate them. So if you see, for example, a bee that that has been exposed to enough neonics, that bee will start to twitch as the neonics sort of activate the nerve cells. Eventually they'll become paralyzed when that nerve gets overstimulated and dies. And then the bee would eventually die. And that's how they work. It's devastating. The neonicotinoids were designed to attack, if you will, the special receptor that is found in insects. And the hope was that the neonics would be targeted just to those insects and especially to agricultural pests, insects that farmers don't want eating crops. It turns out that the synapse that is being targeted is present in many more types of animals, although it's present in larger concentrations in insects. It does occur in other animals and in mammals and humans. So the neonicotinoid insecticides don't just attack insects as the chemical industry had hoped that they would. Neonicotinoid means literally a new nicotine-like compound. In many ways, not surprising that humans and others would have nicotine receptors because nicotine use is something that we do see across the globe. And what's interesting in, in researching this, I found that the bees, if given a choice, will actually go to flowers or what they're pollinating that have this neonic sprayed on it, right? Because in turn, it sounds like it's addictive, just like nicotine. That's absolutely right. Yeah, they found in studies that bees actually prefer the the neonic contaminated nectar. And, you know, right, you can't ask a bee how it feels about the two different types of nectar, but it certainly does look similar to nicotine addiction. And yet it's killing them much quicker. I know that in Canada, the largest use of this pesticide is in canola oil. And so everyone knows they're widely used in big ag crops. So soybeans, corn, wheat, even sorghum. And I've read that we use neonics on our pets too in the flea control. Is that truthful? Yes, it is. The use of the neonics is often with other kinds of insecticides. So it's a little harder to sort out what's happening. But 
they are used. And in some of the studies that show potential harm to humans from neonics are studies of those uh, tick and flea products. And there's a large number of cases reported to the Food and Drug Administration about uh, flea collars that involve neonic compounds in them. So are they still in use today? Oh, yeah. This is like incredibly upsetting. So a a known neurotoxin, right, that when bees eat it or exposed to it, makes them shake almost as if I would say like someone with Parkinson's. And when we, I was preparing for this, I was speaking to my aunt yesterday, whose husband was unfortunately diagnosed with Parkinson's and the doctor they're using in California spends a week every month in Northern Cali meeting with farmers and farm workers and looking at how the use of pesticides is actually causing Parkinson's in people. So I'm just blown away. And the one thing I want to know is like, why? Like, I mean, I guess I suppose we could eat organic, but it's we all know that that isn't fully possible to eat organic all the time. You know, I just took my son out. We just had dumplings. There's probably canola oil. It probably wasn't non-GMO. It feels like, you know, how do we protect ourselves? Like, what do we do? Well, some of what is seen when humans are exposed to neonicotinoids looks like acute nicotine poisoning. That's what it looks like when you see the bees shaking. That's something that people who have too much nicotine will report. So we are seeing the expected physical manifestations from acute ingestion or exposure. And what has happened is that the chemical industry has moved from very toxic organophosphate type of insecticides, pesticides they call them, to the neonicotinoids hoping to reduce the impact on human beings because the organophosphates are applied as a powder and get all over the farm workers. The neonics spare the farm workers because they can be painted onto the seeds and then the farm worker and the farmers can just take the seeds and plant them, which makes it seem to them that they have less exposure. The difficulty is is that research is showing that that painting on of the neonic to the seed, the neonic then permeates the plant as it grows. So every feature of the plant, the stem, the leaves, the fruit, is completely contaminated. That cannot be washed off. And because the chemicals are water-soluble, they run into the water that comes off the farm. And so there are exposures that were not expected, and the chemical is having more harm in humans than was expected based on the nature of the the way that the insecticide works. And what's important to note here, too, about these seed treatments, initially they were sold as precision treatments, but we know better now, only about 2 to 5% of that seed coating gets into the target plant. The other 95% stays in the soil where it persists for years. And it's just as Kathy described, every time it rains, anytime there's irrigation, anytime there's lawn watering, if it's used on lawns, those neonics are moving through the soil. They're contaminating new soil. If there are plants in that new soil, those plants are soaking up the pesticides. They're becoming toxic. If there's a waterway nearby, that waterway is becoming contaminated. And because neonics are used in the same place year after year after year, What you have is a buildup of toxicity in the soil that's ever expanding every time it rains. And we see that. We see that in the water. Uh, We know in New York, neonics are all over New York water supplies. They're in about a third of Long Island groundwater samples from testing there. I think they're the most detected pesticides in that aquifer. They're just really good at contaminating the whole environment. So what we have is huge swaths of land in New York and across the country that are ubiquitously contaminated. And by the way, we also see this in our own bodies. So the CDC monitors people for exposure to pesticides. They look at the urine of thousands of people. And what they found is about half the American population is regularly exposed to neonics. And they know that because it shows up in people's urine. 
And what that means is on any given day, you know, flip a coin and that's your chance of being exposed to neonics. Certainly eating organic can help, although even some organic produce has been shown to be contaminated with neonics. Again, just showing how big a problem this is and how they get into every little area. New York in particular is at risk of contamination is one of the ways to pull neonics out of contaminated water supplies is with carbon filtration. But we know that New York City has a filtration avoidance determination. They don't filter their water. And the same with Syracuse. And of course, a lot of people on Long Island are getting groundwater. So there's every reason to expect that in New York, actually the risks of exposure may be greater, even for the folks who are, are purchasing organic. All right. So, I mean, that, right? Sorry, sorry. I know that's not, that maybe that's not the answer you want to hear. But I'm, I'm here for it all. So, I mean, the first thing that I want to express is, you know, why is this everyone's problem? So, and most people that listen to this podcast do know that, you know, when you put something in the ground, that that's going to go everywhere. And I know having a mother who lived upstate that nearly everyone has well, right? And that your well waters are getting exposed. That It's just going into it. Okay, two questions. One, are neonics like PFOAs, which are constantly, they're not going away, PFOAs. And two, what is the long-term exposure of this look like in a human being, particularly in our children? The good news about neonics is that they do go away over time, as opposed to the PFOA type of compounds. The length of time that it takes for them to go away is protracted. It's months to years, not days to weeks. And so we need to stop as we start to see these rising concentrations. And the sooner we start to stop, the sooner we stop, the better we have bringing down those levels and decreasing exposure. The main foods in which we see the neonics are corn and wheat and soybean, which have these seed treatments. And so getting rid of those, regulating that, banning that use would get rid of 80 plus percent of the exposure and allow the ground and water supply to start to clear itself out. We don't know yet the full range of human health impacts, but there are some very worrisome signs. One is how lethal the neonics are to every organism that has been studied. They do kill the insects that they were targeted, designed to kill, but they also kill worms. They kill birds that eat those insects, bats, birds and bats being other pollinators in addition to the pollinating insects. They kill what are called beneficial insects, perhaps more quickly than they kill the bad insects, the insects that the farmers were trying to get out of their fields. They kill rats and mice and small <laughs> mammals, but there have been studies to show genetic defects in deer that were purposefully exposed to a particular kind of neonic. And there are some human case control studies which show birth defects as well, as well as potentially some autism-like symptoms. And clearly, acute exposure does cause nicotine poisoning type of symptoms. So we know from the studies we have that this compound can be lethal. The levels at which we're finding in our food are not yet at the levels that would trigger the FDA or the Environmental Protection Agency to ban them, but they may be missing something because the type of action that this chemical class has is endocrine disruption, which are a class of chemicals that can work at very tiny concentrations. And these chemicals, these neonics, have not been studied deeply enough for that effect. And when they have been studied, they have been shown to be problematic as endocrine disruptors, which would explain how they would have a role in generating uh, genetic defects and congenital malformations, because development is so precise that any kind of small disruption can have a major impact. And speaking with our health scientists here, she has a great analogy, and that's a needle prick might hurt an ant, more than it hurts you, but it's worth asking whether you get that needle prick in your arm or in your eye. 
And because these neonics, again, are, are targeting nerves that are so central to our brain development, especially for children, you know, the more and more we know about them, the more and more they look like that needle prick in the eye, that even that small concentration, that seemingly small harm can have big effects. Yeah. I would like to get on and talk about how this is affecting our, our bee colony collapse. I mean, you, you bring up all these issues. And I think, first of all, with our children and all the autoimmune diseases that everyone has now that we haven't seen, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Everyone has something, right? And I'm old enough to remember that back when I was a kid, this wasn't the case. And unfortunately, like, I mean, if we could take it and like someone dropped dead from it the next day, we would probably have a better chance of having it banned right away versus these long-term effects that we all live with and then come down the line, you know, someone has Crohn's disease. So the bees though, like for immediate case, I want to talk about the insects and the bees and and one of the things that a friend of mine had said, she had uh, visitors here from France and they went for a walk in the woods upstate and they were taken by the fact that there were no insects. And they mm -hmm. said, where are all of your insects that you don't have any? And this would explain it, right? And this neonics are in fact killing the bees. I mean, I, I have a, a document here from Bear Sygenta, which is, you know, no surprise that they manufacture this. But that they're saying that the field studies are showing that it doesn't affect the bees, but yet I know we have lab studies that do. So let's put that issue to bed and let's, let's unpack it and tell us, what is this happening to the bees? We all know about the bee collapse. How is this killing them? So neonics are definitely a lead cause of that collapse. And bees were really sort of the canary in the coal mine for mm -hmm. these pesticides. The reason we became so interested in neonics was 15 years ago, beekeepers in New York and across the country saw their hives, well, hive losses just through the roof, right? So they're losing two or three or four times as many hives as they did before, seemingly overnight. And there are a lot of problems affecting bees. Certainly climate change is a problem. Disease and parasites are a problem. Habitat loss is a problem. But all of those are sort of happening at these steady levels or steadily increasing levels. There was nothing that really mapped with that sudden spike in losses, except for the sudden spike in use of these pesticides, neonics, especially on treated corn and soybean seeds. That's when the use really took off. They introduced in the 90s, but it's the mid 2000s when they really just shoot through the roof on these seeds. And you know, since that time, there's been essentially an avalanche of science connecting the losses to the neonics and it's it's fairly easy to see why um the first big reason is that neonics are so incredibly toxic to insect life so since their introduction they've made u.s agriculture 48 times more harmful to insect life and to give you a sense of scale here again that neonic treated seed we're talking about just one seed can have enough active ingredient to kill a quarter million bees or more. Multiply that times 30,000 seeds an acre for your typical cornfield, and the fact that there's a million acres of corn in New York, and the fact that virtually 100% of conventional corn is pre-treated with the neonic, and you begin to easily see the connection. But again, that connection is now well-established in the scientific literature. There was a good report from Cornell University that came out in June of 2020 that also saw those clear links. It was a literature review. It looked at over 1,100 peer-reviewed papers, basically everything that's been written on neonics and pollinators. And the trend is unmistakable, right? It's, it's what you would guess, but it's really clear now. But they were our first indicator that, hey, something's wrong here. And to talk about other insects for a sec. So some folks may know, some folks may not. Honeybees are not native to the US. They were brought in from the old country uh, and used for pollination here. But there's over 400 species of native bees in New York, over 4,000 in the US. They're not counted in the same way that honeybees are because honeybees are essentially livestock. But what is happening to honeybees is likely happening to the whole insect world those 400 native bee species, plus all sorts of other insects. And that has huge ramifications, not just for ecosystems, because most plant life requires pollination, 
but also for crop pollination. We have good science showing a number of crops in the U.S. are already limited by a lack of pollinators. Uh, and there's other ecosystem functions that are lost there too. It's a real crisis. And the last analogy that I have is, you know, what I tell folks, you say you're old enough to remember back when people didn't have, you know, all sorts of autoimmune disorders. Well, if you remember maybe in the 90s, which I do on a day in, you know, the late summer or early fall, driving through a rural area, you'd have to put your windshield wipers on whether or not it was raining because there would be so many insects, they'd just be covering the windshield. Think to yourself, when is the last time you had to do that? Mm-hmm. That's the effect that these pesticides are having on the environment. They're literally hollowing out our ecosystems before our eyes. And it's it's hard to notice, but it's real and it's happening and it, it has real consequences. Uh, and I would say to those who say, well, oh, so what's one less mosquito? I don't really like insects as well, because that is a mentality. And I would say with the lack of biodiversity that we have, more likely our whole ecosystem is going to fail. Biodiversity is crucial. If you lose well, one mosquito, you're losing food for the birds, right? Well, and it's it's the mosquitoes, though, that are likely to persist. So sort of the ironic <laughs> thing here... <laughs> The ironic thing here is, you know, you've heard people talk about insect apocalypse and stuff like that. But what's what's happening really is it's a loss in total amount of insects, but it's also a loss in biodiversity. We're probably going to have cockroaches for a long time to come. We're probably going to have mosquitoes. It's the pest insects, the ones that we don't want, that are best able to adapt to these new toxic environments. It's the insects that we want to keep like the bees and all of the predator and butterflies and the predator insects that eat the pest insects that have a harder time adjusting so in a, in a funny way these insecticides sometimes create their own cycle of dependence they kill all the bugs that control the pest populations and then we say oh well look the pest populations are out of control we need to use more pesticides and that's sort of the dangerous cycle What a world that would look like. Mosquitoes, cockroaches, and extreme heat, and no food. And no bees, yeah. And no bees. Not one that I want to live in. One of the things that we saw as people were trying to evaluate the role of neonics in killing off bees was the hypothesis that the varroa mite was instead the cause. And the varroa mite has a role, but there are now very good studies to show that if bee populations are exposed to neonics and then exposed to the mites, their ability to fight them off, the mites off, becomes very much diminished. So it has taken some research to be able to reveal the harmful effects of these insecticides. There was recently a demonstration that was very dramatic. A area in Japan that had a large fishery introduced neonics into the agricultural area around the lake that was providing the fish. And the drop-off in fish immediately following the introduction of the neonics into the surrounding landscape was as dramatic as you can see in science. It went from huge populations to almost nothing and stayed low. And it's very easy to see that the insecticide was killing the insects that the fish live on, that their food, but it also looks like the insecticide was directly toxic to the fish and to other marine animals. So we now have that very visible, dramatic evidence that people were saying, oh, we don't have. We do have it, and we have these more subtle indicators that mammals and humans may also be seeing these effects currently at low levels. But if we keep going on this road, we're doing the experiment, but with our own children and our own families of what the impact is of increasing the biological load of neonicotinoids. So it was supposed to be safe to vertebrates, right? And now we're seeing that the birds, the fish, and of course we fall under that. So I would not be surprised if there's long-term effects on humans. There was a, a big issue with birds dying this summer, early this summer. Is this linked to it down south? With the, I don't know, was it cicadas or they had Japanese beetles, right? And they were using insecticides. And We know that birds eat insects and yeah. that insect-eating birds 
are declining at much faster rates than any other bird population. So that does point towards these um, neonics, which are now the dominant insecticide. And it looks as though, again, the insecticide can have direct impacts on the birds as well as killing off their food supply. So yes, we're pouring poison into our food supply and we're poisoning the plants, the pollinators, and probably people. Yeah. But, you know, one of the bigger effects is, as Kathy mentioned, these pesticides are killing the food source for these birds. But in terms of direct impacts, one of the most dangerous times is planting. Because, again, you have these toxic seeds that are planted over, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres. And birds like to eat seeds. And they do. And that's been observed in the wild. And there's also been good studies linking the eating of these toxic seeds. You know, as you mentioned, one seed is enough to kill some small songbirds. But even larger birds eating just a few seeds exhibit all sorts of neurological symptoms. In one case, there was one study showing that birds became in the popular press anorexic, but they weren't able to gain weight. And that affects their ability to migrate and ultimately survive. Yeah, Yeah, they were falling from the sky. And of course, birds like to eat corn and they eat the wheat in the field. You said it's on conventional corns and wheat. Is it field corn, Dan, or is it non-organic corn that humans eat or field corn for the animals, which I would imagine would still go into the animals because then the humans are eating those. So the biggest is certainly field corn just by area, but these are also used on sweet corn. Just about everything that is not organic. Uh, I'm shaking my head. It's unbelievable. And then I have to wonder, we're going to get to the good news here, which is that we're going to stop this. But tell me, though, I mean, you're in RGCs, you're in this deep. Why is this constantly happening? Why aren't pesticides being properly evaluated? Like, how can we fix that? Is there a way? I mean, I think it boils down to, you know, fundamentally the way our pesticide laws work and also the culture of EPA's pesticide office, but really quick. So the way that our federal pesticide law, FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Redenticide Act works is EPA can approve pesticides if they don't cause unreasonable adverse impacts to the environment. So the key word there is unreasonable. We recognize that, hey, pesticides are designed to kill things, right? They're gonna have an impact, but we just don't want that to be unreasonable. So what's unreasonable then is decided by the agency and the evidence that the agency has in front of it is all submitted by the pesticide registrants. So to approve a pesticide, you have to submit all sorts of studies on toxicity and this and that. But those studies are not generated by the government. Those studies are generated by the pesticide industry. And in many cases, they use, quote, independent labs. But, you know, a lab that gets all of its money from its client, Bayer, is maybe not so independent. So those are the studies that EPA uses. And beyond that, there is a culture of being very cozy within EPA's pesticide office with the chemical industry. And there's even, you know, if you read about, if you Google Monsanto papers, there was a whole thing with glyphosate where a top EPA pesticide official was bragging that they would win a medal if they suppressed a study on how glyphosate was linked to cancer. So the culture at EPA's pesticide off is not great to say the least. And there's a lot of articles written on that. Again, they have this really loose standard on reasonable impacts. All of the data is from the industry. And, you know, we see this with neonics because there were a lot of animal studies that showed that these are toxic to mammals. Studies showing thinning of the cortex in rats. And EPA discarded these, right? They ignored these studies in order to approve the chemicals in the way that the chemical industry wanted them approved. And, you know, we're seeing the impacts now, so. Yeah, no one should be surprised if you saw the movie Dark Waters or if you followed any of that and you did research, or if you read my book, Detox Your Home, you would understand that many chemicals are introduced. They're known to cause major birth defects and are still out there. It's always profit over people, right? Yeah, and chlorpyrifos is another example, right? We had the agency, you know, recognize that that was toxic to kids' brains years ago, and they just recently banned it. And only that, after a court opinion, 
that essentially forced them to do so. Yeah, there's lead still out there, still being used on paint on the streets. So it just blows my mind though. All right, well, I wanna get to the good news. So first of all, this has, neonics have been banned in Europe, is that correct? The three main neonic chemicals have been banned in Europe for outdoor uses. And in in France, actually, it's funny that the, your visitors were from France. France has banned all of them outdoors, mm-hmm. but the major ones that account for the vast majority of use have been yeah, banned all across Europe for all of them since 2018, but a lot of them since 2013. There were sort of two phases there. So when you say major ones, so that still concerns me. So there's still neonics being used, but are they not that toxic? Because neonics is the classification for several different pesticides, correct? Yeah, several different chemicals. So the ones that are still in use are the ones that are just sort of in terms of volume, just not not as popular as sort of the main ones for whatever reason. Um, so the three chemicals that Europe took action on accounted for the vast majority of the use there. Okay. Okay. Anywhere else? India, there's a lot of farming there. Are they? So Canada has taken steps to reduce neonic use on treated seeds. And I want to do, before we get into the good stuff, I want to do one more fact sure. that sort of makes all of this bad stuff seem, you know, criminal almost. Tell us. Tell us. Well, I guess we can go into that. So the neonic treated seeds, corn, soybean, and wheat, that's where the mass of this pesticide is. In New York State, about three quarters of the neonic use in agriculture are on corn and soybean seeds. Across the country, it's probably much more. I mean, if you're looking in the Midwest of Minnesota, probably you know, 90 plus percent of all neonic use are are on these corn and soybean seeds. We've known for a number of years now that these seed pretreatments don't have any economic benefits for the farmers that are using them in most of the places where these crops are grown, the Midwest, the Northeast, maybe some benefit in Southern Alabama, but for the rest of the country, no economic benefit. And that's, too, what this Cornell report found last summer. It found that these treated seeds pose real substantial risks to bees, but no overall net income benefits to farmers. And to break that down a little bit more, very rarely can you find a yield benefit at all. And even when you do, if you factor in the extra cost that the companies charge for of having these pesticides on the seeds, it's a wash. So... Again, what's really criminal about this is that we have the, this major use of a neurotoxin over huge swaths of the country, contaminating water, contaminating land, contaminating plant life, killing bees, hollowing out ecosystems, getting into our bodies, and it's all for nothing, <laughs> right? The only people profiting are the chemical companies. Yeah. Is this a bear product or is this an everyone product? The first neonics came from Bayer, and there were a few other companies, but at this point, they're out of patent, so there's a whole bunch of people. A lot of people make them. A lot of people making them and and just making money off it and not caring. Birds dropping from the sky, humans contaminated. It just blows my mind. It's just like, can you imagine not seeing a beautiful bird? There were very few blue jays. I live in New York City and I saw very few blue jays this year. And, you know, I've lived here and you see the seasons. I'm in the middle. I'm where they migrate. So I'm down in Battery Park and I just don't understand it. I mean, that is another podcast and I'm not sure who I'd interview for that. If you know, anyone knows, let me know because humans, right? So, okay, can we get to the good news, though? Is there some good news, Dan and and Dr. Nolan, like what's going on in New York? And I know we can be active here. There's a bill coming up in September, September 20th, as a matter of fact, right, where people can go and testify and hopefully, and there's a bill to to ban neonics here. So it's a bill that has targeted bans. So to go back real quick to the Cornell report, yeah, Yeah. I found these these neonic-treated seeds were really bad for bees and don't have any benefits. It also found that non-agricultural uses of neonics, so think lawns and gardens, you know, it's sort of ironic that people are using these products on their bee-friendly gardens unwittingly. Wait, I'm sorry, I'm gonna interrupt, I rarely interrupt, but tell us, do you know what products they're in so people don't use them? So it used to be Bayer Advanced, and I think that's become BioAdvanced because Bayer actually sold those holdings when it merged with Monsanto. 
There's a whole bunch of different product names, though. You know, as mentioned, these are out of patent, so a lot of people making these products. You know, watch out for any all-in-one garden products that advertise they can kill bees. A lot of times they sneak bees into fertilizers, you know, fertilize your rose garden and get rid of bugs at the same time. Those are the products you want to look out for and really read those labels carefully. And they won't say neonics, unfortunately. They'll say the name of the neonic chemical. Uh, you can look those up on Google. I won't, I won't read those in the program. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to find them and I'll post them online. All right. Go ahead. So Cornell has this report on the seeds. Right. You know, it found that the seeds, big costs, no benefits. Then for the non-agricultural uses, really big costs as well, some of the highest risk to bees in the study. But most of those uses either were not needed or they were replaceable with safer, effective alternatives, with the exception of invasive species treatment. That's the one place the Cornell report said, hey, you might want to keep some of these for hemlock, will you delchid, emerald ash borer, et cetera. So the bill basically follows the Cornell report. It's a permanent prohibition on the Munich-treated corn, soybean, wheat seeds, which are best replaced with nothing because they don't provide any value and actually could save farmers a little bit of money. And then these non-agricultural uses as well, which are huge uses. I mean, we shouldn't discount those. We've talked a lot about farming, but these non-ag uses are approved at much higher rates per amount of area. And to give you a sense of scale there, a square foot of treated lawn can have enough active ingredient to kill a a million bees or more at EPA labeled rates. And these are products that are also used, mind you, in urban and suburban areas right next to water supplies. So very important to get those uses as well. Between the seeds and between these non-agricultural uses, ballpark, you're getting about 80, 90% of the neonics that are going into New York's environment. That's what this bill targets. It's the Birds and Bees Protection Act. And it's a very sensible bill. It's targeting those uses that either provide no benefit or replaceable with safer alternatives. There is a carve-out for invasive species. There's other sort of targeted carve-outs, but this really gets at the heart of the neonic contamination problem in New York and would be, for the United States, a really trailblazing piece of legislation. Although I forgot to mention Maine just last June, banned uh, neonics on residential landscapes, but this goes even farther. This would be more meaningful. Okay, so it's the first bill of its kind in the United yes. States? in the, in the United, United States. States. Yeah, right. in the United States. And so for those of you who are listening who may not be from New York State, we get this passed in New York State. This bill, oftentimes what uh, assembly members do um, and senators is that they take a bill that is from another state and then they conform it to their state and then it can go across. You know, that's how it works. The good news here is that we have good science and we have that lining up with what we were talking about earlier, which is this increasing awareness in the public that our butterflies aren't here, that our birds aren't here. People are seeing it back as they did with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Yeah. So we have this nice confluence of public awareness rising with the science becoming very clear and the, the clear description of the ability to ban these compounds without harming farmers. In fact, we may benefit farmers by doing this. So there's a clear path forward for people to take action, be confident that they're asking for something really good. You know, getting rid of these treated seeds does most of the work of bringing our butterflies and moths and, and birds and bats back and getting this chemical class out of our water supply. So if we're going to do an experiment, let's do the experiment of going back to zero of these in our water supply and our food and see whether we see improvements in our health. That would be a much better experiment to do. And the real lift is to get our elected leaders to be willing to take on the chemical industry mm -hmm. because that's a big industry and mm -hmm. they swing heavily against very sensible legislation like this. Yeah. So it takes people power to combat that. And once we get this done in New York State and it does well as it will, then every other state can follow it. 
nobody else has to make it up or go through the legislative crafting process. They can just take it off the shelf and adapt it if they want. But this is really a very well-crafted, sensible legislation. So we just need to get people to insist on it being passed. That's right, Dr. Nolan. That's right. And it's very simple. Again, if you are in New York State and you want to have this in your state, all you need to do is take this bill and then call up your assembly member. They work for you. And find out who your local assembly member is. I did that. I walk, Mine's Yulene New. I walked in, I, I scheduled a meeting, and I sat down. And, and I forwarded this bill. I want her support on this. And you may have to make a few phone calls, and you can do that. But you can do this. We need to do this. So tell us, the bill is in the assembly, it's A7429. And in the Senate, it's S699B. I'll also put this on the website and it'll be in the liner notes. But it's Assemblymember Inglebright and Senator Hoyleman who wrote this. So is it up for vote on the 20th or is that just uh, testifying? So that's just a hearing. The bill was introduced last year. Uh, again, Assemblyman Engelbright, Senator Hoyleman, both real champions for yes. uh, pollinators, pollinator protection. And in the last session, which sort of the typical let New York legislative session runs from early January to June, it passed the Senate, but it did not unfortunately pass the Assembly before the session was over. So the full legislative session in New York is two years. So that was year one. Year two is coming up in January 2022. The bill will be reintroduced automatically in both houses. I'm sorry to confuse your listeners, but it probably will have new bill numbers when it's reintroduced in 2022. But right now, those are the right bill numbers. Uh, what's happening on September 20 is a legislative hearing in the New York Assembly Environmental Committee in the way that you know, these bills move, they have to go to the committees first, they have to be voted out of committees, and then they can go to the full floor. So that's sort of the process it's going through in the assembly. So the hearing will be in Albany on the 20th, it'll be at 11am, you can look it up at the New York Assembly Environmental Conservation Committee website. And that has all the information there about signing up or submitting written testimony, if you want. Um, we definitely want people to show up, we know it's still a pandemic. So if you have concerns about health or safety, feel free to just submit written testimony instead. And again, that, that notice will be online. But we really want to show, again, it's as, as mentioned, people power is the key here. We know the chemical industry is making money on these pesticides. We yeah. know they want to keep them around. Yeah, this isn't going to be easy. It's probably a billion dollar industry, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they don't let money go easily. Right. And so they don't want to give up this revenue stream. They are going to be spending money to try and stop this bill. They already are spending money to try and stop this bill. The power that we have, again, is that people power. So, yeah, we'd encourage folks to show up or write in for the 20th of September. But also, you know, the real fight on this is going to be starting January 2022. Okay, so just keep putting pressure. So it's the Birds and Bees Protection Act, and you want to email, or even you can post it. I'll put it up on my Instagram, but you can post little memes and stuff and tag them. Tag your assembly member, tag your senators, know who they are. If you don't know who they are, just Google it, all right? Your local senators and assembly members. But that's who we want to hit right now, right? We want them to support it, to get their support and say they'll sign on to the bill. Yes, right. we'd like to have every assembly member and senator in New York State be a co-sponsor on this bill. Okay. And if they are not a co-sponsor, then pledge their support to vote to enact this legislation. It's a very simple, really kind of law to read, and we're happy to go talk with anybody who has questions about it. But it, it's pretty straightforward that the worst impact is from these seed-treated corns, grains, and we get rid of those and a few non-agricultural uses, and we really have addressed the problem. I think the chemical industry has a lot to lose here yeah. because this particular class of compounds, they've sold very heavily. They have it to the point where people, farmers cannot find corn seed that isn't treated with this stuff. And the Cornell report and other research shows it's not doing any good. 
So we're going to have the ability to ban these seed treatments and farmers are going to do just as well. I think that's going to call into question the whole use of insecticides in the farming industry as we go forward. You know, we're sold a bill of good with the organophosphate chemicals. We've certainly been sold a bad bill of goods with these neonicotinoids. And you can talk about other insecticides that farmers can use, but I would really encourage farmers to try it without. Because the research shows the yields will be just as good. There'll be no exposures either to the skin or through drinking and eating their, their foods. And people, I think, are going to start demanding that all food be free of these kinds of pollutants. I mean, we should be demanding that. Yeah. How in the world would we tolerate chemicals in our food that we can't even wash off? That's right. And Dr. Nolan, I would say that people don't even know this. That's the thing. I didn't even know this. I consider myself pretty aware of all this that's going on. I had no idea. The corn, I, I just bought sweet corn today. You know, it's in season, right? I don't know if it was organic or not. It came from our farmer stand and it was the only farmer stand there. But the chances are it could have neonics in it. And I'm just not okay with that. I am not okay with that. And I know uh, Dr. Shiva, do you know Dr. Shiva? Yes. Right. And she's been doing this fight for a long time. And, you know, we have to keep our seeds and the seeds are the most valuable, valuable asset that we have. I encourage people to go back to the farm stands where they've been buying products and start asking. You know, it doesn't have to be organic if that farmer is not using this class of compounds. Yeah. Start with that. You can say, do you know, are the farmers you're buying from using neonics? And if they are, then you you have to find somebody who isn't or buy organic. And it's not completely free from exposure because of the insecticide getting into the water, but it's much, much less in organic produce in produce that's been grown without the use of insecticides. So we go there and we get our elected officials to protect us at this much higher level. So you don't have to go through all that to get food that's not contaminated. That's right. That's I come from a long line of farmers. I have a, a fourth generation of farmers and my grandfather used to go to the, there's a seed counter and he would pick his seeds. That's how it was done. It wasn't done through a chemical company. So I thank you guys so much for sharing all this. And can we go to what websites can people go to? Should they go to the NRDC? Dr. Nolan, do you have a website? Can you share that with us where they should go or Instagram or Twitter, whatever? Facebook? I think the easiest way would be to Google Birds and Bees Protection Act and you can type in, I mean, there's so many organizations doing good work on this. You could type in Birds and Bees Protection Act, NRDC and take action. Catskill Mountain Keeper, Citizens Campaign for the Environment, uh, Sierra Club, Audubon. I'm always worried when I start naming names that I'm going to leave somebody out. Environmental Advocates. Yeah, I shouldn't do the full list, but, you know, type in Birds and Bees Protection Act and your favorite New York environmental organization. Chances are they will be working on this issue. If they're not, you can ask them to work on this issue. But certainly you can find um, ways to take action at um, NRDC's webpage. And we have blogs and graphics and all sorts of stuff there, too. Amazing. Amazing. So last question for you both. And I ask everyone who's been on the show that you're change makers. So and I know this is a lot to hold. Just sitting here with you for an hour and hearing all this information, it's overwhelming and it's upsetting. And How do you take this information and keep going? What keeps you being the change and getting up every morning? I'll let you decide who goes first. Well, let me say that on Catskill Mountain Keeper's site, we have catskillmountainkeeper.org protecting pollinators. So that's a place that brings together a lot of information and has a petition that you can call up and send an email message directly to your state, New York State Assembly member or New York State Senator. As a pediatrician, have always wanted to keep children and families eating healthy food and drinking clean water and breathing fresh air. If we do that, then the job of a pediatrician becomes very easy. A lot of children and families are now exposed to more toxins in their home environment and in their food and some in their air than they were a few decades ago 
And these products are being put into our environment to bring benefit to big companies. We should take control of our lives and elect people that will take action, appoint people to these regulatory boards that will enforce our laws very strictly, have better laws. So I believe we can actually turn back the clock. We can even pull carbon out of our atmosphere, but we have to do it. We have to draw down the carbon. We have to eliminate the pesticides. And to throw up our hands as though there's nothing we could do just leaves us in panic and despair. Not a good place to be, especially since every small action adds up and can inspire somebody else. Yeah, and, and Kathy, I'll just build on that. I mean, if right, if the only other option is right, wallowing there in panic and despair. And I think the only way that you can get past that is by taking action, by fighting through. And it does work, right? I mean, we can do good things when we get together and we bind together. I know the problems of the world seem overwhelming, but if you take an example, you don't have to look far, right? I mean, if you look at what happened with sort of the first Silent Spring-like pesticide or DDT, you know, which the book uh, was based on, we got rid of DDT. And guess what? The environment healed, right? Bald eagles were on their way out, and now they are here in big numbers. So we know that nature is resilient. We know that these problems can be solved. We just have to stop digging, right? We have to stop making things worse and then they can get better. Well said, well said. Well, thank you, Dr. Nolan, Dan, Rochelle, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being the change. Thank you. My great pleasure. Thank you for having us. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.